Welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. This podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who have been successful because they found what they were passionate about, created something special, and most of all, they gave themselves permission to go and do it. The genesis of this podcast is the inspirational lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and their world-changing impact. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place advisors come to grow their minds and businesses. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We've heard a lot of great stories over the past on this podcast from a number of successful people. I can't wait for you to hear this next story. Want to give yourself permission to be successful? Want to learn how to bet on yourself? Then listen on. Let me introduce Ashley Webb, who's the Director of Operations and Onboarding at Kingswood US, and so much more. Welcome, Ashley. Hello. Can you tell me a little bit about your role at Kingswood? Let's start there, and then we can go back. Yeah, so basically I oversee all of the day-to-day operations for the uh, broker-dealer and RIA, um, as well as my team onboards new registered reps and their admins. Um, And I also, as you said, do a lot more. I uh, run our conferences as well. So I do all of the logistical planning and run the Kingswood US conferences. (laughs) And you've been there quite a while. Um, yeah, so I've been working for Mike Nessum officially since November of 2019, but um, I was a part of a BD that he uh, had a small ownership stake in Benchmark uh, prior, and I ran his ops for him then. So I met him in like November of 2018 and officially moved over to work for him full time in November of 2019. All right, we'll, we'll get back to Kingswood, but let's go back. You grew up just outside of Boise, Idaho. <laughs> When you were young, did you ever think Wall Street was in your future? Never. Um, I was like a big um, soccer player. And I also was really into like artsy stuff. I played piano and I was in choir. So, you know, like all kids, I've pictured like, oh, one day I'm going to be like a famous singer or something. And then as life kind of like goes on, you're like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be those things. At one time I had aspirations. I was actually going to school, uh, college as a history major. So I wanted to be a a history teacher, but never, never wall street. Um, I did work at a bank through college. So I guess it, you know, and money wise, it was always there, but it was, uh, never wall street and (laughs) never this. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about the early part of your life. It, It wasn't the best time. Yeah. I mean, I, I did come from, um, challenges. I also didn't come from like the worst there is either, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, him and my mom had a very tumultuous relationship. He was back and forth and, uh, in and out. And there'd be times we didn't see him for a while. And then he'd be around consistently for a while. There was just, you know, there was, there was a lot of, um, struggles, but it really helped. I learned to work through things and not make excuses in life also, Um, kind of no matter what was going on, I went to school, I worked hard at school, I showed up to soccer practice, I came to all the games, you know, I always kind of had that, I'm just going to be here and do my best no matter what's going on. But uh, yeah, there was definitely some challenges growing up for sure. And you really excelled at soccer to the point where you could have done things. Yeah, that's probably one of my like regrets. I don't have a lot of regrets per se, uh, in what I've done. But that's probably one of them is that 
I really could have played like overseas, but I didn't pursue that, pursue that. By the time I was in New York city, um, making money, soccer money just wasn't enough. And as we all know, women athletes don't get paid enough anyways. And women's soccer players really don't get paid that well. So I was kind of like, eh, no, but soccer has always been probably the thing that kept me straight and narrow more than anything. If it wasn't for soccer, I've always said I probably would have ended up in juvie or worse, but I knew like in high school, like, okay, if I, if I get in this fight, I can't play in the game tomorrow because I'll get suspended. So it's soccer really was like my, um, what do they call it? Like my, my guiding force <laughs> your North star, your anchor. Yeah. It, 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 that kept me level. And I had great mentors through soccer. Some of my coaches were like second dads to me and older brothers and really my extended family. So soccer was probably a big, huge saving grace for me in my, in my adolescent time period. So, so somehow great at soccer, get through high school, you made your way to, to Boise State, which every person growing up around Boise seems to go to Boise State. <laughs> yeah, Boise State. And it's funny because now traveling people, when I'm like, yeah, I'm from Idaho and right outside of Boise, they're like, oh, the blue turf. And I'm like, oh God, I hate that field. Um, but yeah, I, I actually went for one year because I took a year off of uh, after high school um, just because life was hard. Like in high school, I left home at 15 and um, I was working at a restaurant called the Mona Lisa in Nampa, Idaho. And um, I worked for an amazing boss who understood, you know, I had a lot going on in life and um, I washed dishes. I did kitchen prep. Um, I did everything but serve because I couldn't serve alcohol. I was too young. Um, but through him, I was able to maintain my soccer career, you know, also in high school. And at the end of my senior year, I was like, I'm tired. I've been working my butt off, going to school, you know, doing it on my own for a long time uh, with help, obviously, from the support that I had around me of other parents and kids. But I was just tired. I was like, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to go to dental assisting school. That was my bright idea at the time. And after like three months of that, I was watching all my friends that were playing soccer in college. And I'm like, what did I do? So obviously I lost my D1 scholarships because I didn't take them, you know, going straight from um, my senior year. So I had kind of had to backtrack in my first year. I went to um, the College of Idaho, which used to be Albertson's College. And I will say that that was the best year of college education I ever had, not just from um, an educational standpoint, because the professors there are all actively working in their field. So like your history teacher is like an archaeologist and just got back from Egypt, you know, <laughs> or so they're, they're these like really well-rounded, super smart individuals. And then the students that go, because it is a private liberal arts school, it's a higher price point. So you get a lot of international students that are just like freak smart people too. And the campus itself is a closed campus and it's a wet campus, which means if you're on school grounds, the police don't bother you. <laughs> so they have like keg races that the school would sponsor and stuff. And I just like, I think that started to open my world. You know, I traveled for soccer always. My dad was a truck driver. I would go with him sometimes, but College of Idaho, like I was going to school with a girl from Nepal. And I'm still friends with her to this day, you know, on Facebook, we stay in contact and um, it just opened the world for me. So I did that first year there and then I transferred up to Boise State. 
So. Okay, so you spent some time at Boise State. Mm-hmm. A few credits short of graduating, you packed two suitcases and booked a one-way flight to New York City. Yeah. So what was the thinking there? I just, I guess at that time, I started to feel like I was this big fish in a really little pond. And I was doing very well at the um, credit union that I was working at. I, I was on track to do whatever I wanted there. If I wanted to be a loan officer or an assistant manager or whatever, but I was just feeling really restricted and like, there has to be more. And California wasn't really enticing because I played so many soccer tournaments there. I had family there. I traveled there all the time. And I had went to New York city um, as part of like a charity trip through the college of Idaho for a week. And we worked at different like soup kitchens and homeless shelters and I fell in love with the city and I was just like, how far away from Boise, Idaho can I get? <laughs> and, still and like, in yeah. And like, just have a completely different world. And New York just felt right. Totally right. So I packed my suitcases, found an apartment with a roommate on um, Craigslist. Cause that's what New Yorkers did at that time. And <laughs> did one Skype with her and then <laughs> showed up in the beginning of June. <laughs> so how did you land a spot at a financial services company and what was the job? Um, okay. So originally I was um, going to just find like a, something to just get money coming in, you know? And so I went to this like job fair and I gave them my resume and I was applying for like a bartender job at like wild wings or something like that. And the lady that was running it, um, it was a program done by the city. She looked at my resume and she's like, no, 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 come here. And she like took me to the back and introduced me to her boss. And they basically hired me on the spot to come work for them, um, which was a program where you helped people find jobs in New York City. It was sponsored by the city. Um, after being there for a few months, I was kind of like, this is not really what I want to do. It's, it's very like sales-based in a lot of ways. So I went back to what I knew, which was banking. And I worked at TD bank for a little while and, um, didn't really enjoy their business model. They're open like seven days a week. And the only holiday they're closed is like Christmas day. (laughs) So I was like, "Mm, not loving this. Um, so the, the girl I had met at the first job was working, uh, had been offered, this job with this event planning company that was on wall street. They were in the Trump building and I was just chatting with her one day and she was like, Hey, you should, um, you should really connect with them. They offered me a job, but I can't take it. And I want to refer you to them. I was like, great. So she connected me with them. And it was, I mean, when you see like a New York, um, a movie about like sales floors in New York, you know, that was it. Like it was this big, huge fifth floor suite in the Trump building, lots of glass everywhere. And just like sales tables all over the place, full of salespeople, just pitching, cold calling all day. And I um, ran their international events as an event planner. So I learned to like multitask and do a lot of um, connecting pieces between different apartments. Cause we were, you know, the ones who ran everything after the salespeople went and got these people to pay ridiculous prices for whatever they were selling. And from that, I kind of got tired of it and um, I had met someone, such a New York store. It's not what you know, it's who, you know, like every good job I had was, I never applied. I didn't, it's just somebody I knew that had made a good connection with. So um, a girl that I became very good friends with her brother owned a hedge fund, which was a few floors above us in the Trump building. 
and her and I were working out one day at Equinox and we just were chatting afterwards and come to find out we lived like five blocks from each other in Queens and we rode the same train home and we both worked in the Trump building just a few floors away from each other. She was from California originally. So we just connected and she was um, very good friends with this guy who ran a uh, broker dealer on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And he was looking for someone to come in and kind of be like their catch all. And I was like, great, sign me up. So he actually came in and interviewed me at my job. <laughs> we kind of played it off like we knew each other and on the spot was like, hey, can you start? I was like, yep, see you in two weeks. <laughs> so that's how I ended up on the trading floor at the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> Super long story short. So was there something about the trading floor, the industry that caught your attention yeah. to want to continue in the industry and you kind of found a place? Yeah. I mean, once you're there, like the New York Stock Exchange, I know it's it's like a shadow of what it used to be now, um, you know, but it's still like the open and the close can get really, really, really crazy. And then it, it is like a big, huge frat house, right? It's mostly men. I think there was like five of us women on the trading floor at any given moment. And, um, you're, you know, you're a minority period there as a woman. Um, but there's just an energy about it. And it's also like a, a super fun environment, but it's crazy intense when they're having like a really busy day and an open or a close or a new IPO or something like that. And it kind of becomes like infectious where you're like, you get caught in the moment, you know, and you're looking around and the, all the machines are beeping and you're trying to keep up with keying the imbalances for the traders and stuff. And it was then that I was like, okay, I, I kind of like this. And I've always been like very money savvy and that person who watches their like 401k incessantly and knew more things about IRAs and stuff than the normal 25 year old knew. So it kind of, I caught the bug then. And then I remember I was helping my boss source a new uh, chief compliance officer. And he was telling me the different licenses he wanted in an individual and how much they would make. And when I saw that, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I can make how much money if I just go read these books on my own and take these tests and pass these licenses. I, I guess that's when it really started to click was like, oh, I, I could like make a lot of money in this also and not have to do sales because I didn't want to do sales. So. So what did you discover about yourself and your capabilities to thrive in an environment like that? I guess looking back now, it was something I always knew I had because my my grandpa, who's like my best friend still, uh, he's like a, a mountain man from <laughs> Missouri. <laughs> um, he's an Ozark hillbilly, really still walks around with his overalls, no shirt on in the summertime, you know, but he really um, always had me around his friends who were all hunters and fishers. So I kind of already was used to moving around men as one of the only women, like I would go camping with him by myself and be the only girl at camp, you know? And even from a young age, he really encouraged me to have a voice. And like, when the guys would say a joke, like zing it right back at them, you know? So in the New York Stock Exchange environment where it's almost all men and it's a frat house at that, you know, you have to be thick skinned and you have to know how to give it back. Because if you show weakness in a lot of ways, it's like preyed on, you know? So um, looking back, I guess I was, I'm very proud of how I handled myself there. Anyone who interacted with me 
knows I'm about my business, but they also know I'm, you know, really fun person. I'm, and if you're on my good side, I can be like the best person ever, but also like, don't mess with me because I'll ask you to step outside the booth real quick (laughs) and talk. (laughs) But I think that set me up for where I am now. And this role now is I got really comfortable with dealing with really strong type A personality men. And even maybe the men that aren't like that, the men that are more like, I don't really know what I'm doing being good at holding their hand and being like, come on, we're going to move this way. This is what we're going to (laughs) do. So what led you to Kingswood? What's the path there? So um, David Martin, who uh, was the CCO at Benchmark previously, he was moving from California to um, McDonough, Georgia, where I live right now. I had met my current husband. We were dating at that time, long distance. And we were kind of at that, like, what are we doing? Where are we going to go? And I decided I would move down south um, to Atlanta. So Jay Gettenberg, who um, was the FinOp for my broker dealer at the exchange, when I told him I was leaving, because I worked very closely with him, was like, hey, give me your resume. I know someone that's moving that way too. So he sent my resume to David Martin and David Martin looked and was like, of all places, this person's moving to McDonough, Georgia also, (laughs) like what are the chances? So he actually called me um, when I was on the trading floor at the exchange working and I like snuck out (laughs) to go talk on my phone and he did a phone interview with me then. And um, then when I came down here, we met in person and he offered me the job and um, that was at uh, Kate Security slash American Global. And they were really in the business of acquiring other BDs that were, you know, about to go under and they acquired Benchmark. And they met Mike Nessum, who then bought like the larger share of it. And as the agreement was, I would run operations for them, you know, so they didn't have to worry about building out an ops department at that time. And that's how I met Mike Nessum was just through that relationship with David Martin and um, Cape. And then when Mike decided to buy, you know, all of Benchmark and take full ownership, he and I spoke and he asked me if I would be interested in coming with him full time. And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so. so it's been a whirlwind of a four years and it seems to be accelerating all the time. What about Kingswood is making that happen? I think that it starts with Mike Nessum, to be honest. Like he has a knack for finding great people who are really hard workers and putting them in the correct role and just letting them do what they do. And that was kind of my thing when I came to work for him was I was like, I can't be micromanaged. Like I need to be trusted to do my job. I'll do it well, but please don't micromanage me. And he's like, great, I don't have time to do that anyways. And he's just like that with everybody is once he knows he can trust you to do your job, he just lets you take it and run with it. And I think that trust that he gives people allows people to really grow and, and feel confident in what they do. Um, and I, I see that all around the board here. You, you see people that are really good at their job that are super hard workers that will literally like go to battle for Mike Nessum because of how he treats them. So. You're onboarding a lot of reps this year and it, that seems to be increasing as well. And what we're hearing is that the reps get a voice too. So it seems like everybody has a voice at Kingswood. Yeah, a hundred percent. Mike's famous for at conferences, like just telling reps, like, Hey, if you have a problem, just call me. 
So sometimes it gets to the point where like a rep will include Mike on like a, just a routine operational email. <laughs> and I have to be like, Hey, I know Mike says, you know, go ahead and contact him with anything, but this isn't really one of those things like me and Val can take care of it for you. <laughs> Cause he's just that open to hearing everybody all the time, which again, empowers people to feel good about who they work for. Cause you, you at the end of the day, you feel like you work for somebody who cares. So your story is unique and you've overcome quite a bit and being this, the permission to succeed podcast, was there one time when you looked yourself in the mirror, took a deep breath and said, I got this, it's on me and no one else. Honestly, there was, there was a few times I would say like when I left home right before I turned 16 and was going through that very difficult time, that was probably the biggest moment. Cause I remember literally looking in the mirror and being like, what am I going to do? Like, and nobody in my actual like immediate family offered me like a room, you know, to like stay and be like, Hey, you're a straight A student. You're an all-star athlete. You work, come stay here. We'll just give you a bed. Surprisingly, it was a family of a girl I played soccer with that stepped up and signed as my guardians for the rest of my junior and senior year. So I could continue to play, but it was, I really remember looking in the mirror and being like, all right, this could go one of two ways, Ashley, <laughs> either you're going to keep working hard and you're going to prove everybody wrong. And you're, you're going to excel and do everything you put your mind to, or you're going to be a dropout and end up pregnant and, you know, do everything that everyone was saying would happen if you leave home right now. And I just felt something in me that just said like, this is the right move. Keep going. Because if I stayed in that environment at that time, I would have repeated the cycle that many people in my family were repeating, you know, with the alcohol and, you know, just not accomplishing their goals in life and very toxic behaviors. And I think getting out of that at that young age made me realize like, okay, if I can survive this, I can kind of do anything. And then, you know, being pregnant and getting through the pandemic pregnant and, you know, continuing to get licenses, that has been a big, like, okay, I can kind of do anything moment too. <laughs> Cause when you're studying and breastfeeding at the same time, and, you know, all those are big reinforcements as a woman, like, okay, I can do this. It's, it's a lot, but I, I can do that. So. What advice do you have to that young woman who may want to work at wall street, but may not have the confidence to make that first call that first step? I would just say F it and do it. Like who cares? Like, don't think about what anybody else says. Don't think about too far ahead for me, especially with getting these licenses. It was always one step at a time. What do I need to do here and tomorrow? And then I'll worry about the next month and the next month after that. And if you look at it just in like what steps to take, it's very attainable. But if you look at it you know, oh my gosh, I'm from Boise, Idaho, and I'm going to move to New York and I'm, I need to find a job. And I need, if you do it all that, it's too much. It, it, how do you do that? Right. But if you come up with, okay, I want to move to New York. I decide a location. What do I need to do next? Okay. I got to figure out where I'm going to stay. Okay. Let me find that. Okay. I have that. Now, how am I going to get there? Okay. I'm going to book a plane ticket. You know, I find with women, especially we have this, like, um, a lot of times we worry, 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 worry. And instead, if we just focus in on what we're trying to accomplish and build a path and a roadmap to that, it makes it a lot easier. Ashley, thanks so much for being with us. It's a great story and it's got a long way to go. Yeah, it does. You're right. It does. 
please follow us for all the latest updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Permission to Succeed podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen.